Praise the Lord. Thank you, Greg. And uh, I also have to correct Greg on one thing real quick. He wanted to thank uh, the people for 30 years of service. I guess we just forget the first eight years of new life, Greg. What's up with that, man? I want to thank people who served the first eight years of new life as well. Amen. Amen. I appreciate my brother and the energy and his love for God. What a blessing to have uh, Greg with us at New Life. The last couple of weeks, uh, we've gone through a state of the church and, and I've gotten a lot of good feedback. Thank you for your feedback on that. And we'll be getting more into the nits and grits of it. So be looking, uh, down the line in the next few weeks about more we'll do with that as well as also getting together, um, a, uh, what is it called when we come together? A congregational meeting uh, soon as well. So be looking for that. Amen. We're going to jump back into our Revelation series today from Revelation chapter 3. Let me start with this. Image is everything. Have you heard that before? That was an iconic saying from an ad in 1989 with a 19-year-old tennis prodigy uh, named Andre Agassi. He's not a 19-year-old prodigy anymore, amen? But he was in 1989, and in the ad, uh, a, a beautiful white Lamborghini uh, pulls up. I know some of you have a, a white Lamborghini, but he pulls up in this white Lamborghini and the door opens. He comes out of the car in this white suit with a black shirt on. He's got this flowing hair, which Andre Agassi no longer has. But in 1989, he had it and he's wearing these cool sunglasses and he pulls down the sunglasses and he says to the camera, image is everything. Image is everything. That that ad followed him for years because uh, Agassi uh, was a prodigy. He was an amazing tennis player, but he had not yet won any major tournaments. And so that dogged him as he went through his tennis career until he finally broke through and began to win those tournaments. But here's what I want to, to focus on for a minute today. Those words, image is everything, are a very good summary of what our culture is like in the 21st century. Amen? We, we can now do more than we've ever been able to do to script out for ourselves an image on Instagram, on Facebook, on other social media. And, and we can craft carefully an image of who we are uh, through branding and other means. But here's what I want you to see about this today. For many people today, image rules. Reputation easily replaces reality. And our caricature is more important than our character. Virtual likes trump over real life. And this is what was going on in the church of Sardis as we read in Revelation chapter 3. So we discover that there's a church of people living in Asia Minor who are living off their reputation that's not grounded in their present reality. 
And so what I'd love to do this morning is stand together, those of you who are here. If you're at home, we'd love you as well to read along with us as we look at God's word and read from Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Do we have that on the board? Revelation 1, 1 through 6. Let's, let's read together. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Verse four. You have you have excuse me yet. You have a few people in Sardis who have not spoiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Whoever has ears Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Amen. Today, I'm going to speak on the subject. You can just remain standing another minute. That's all right. The subject today is God's wake-up call. God's wake-up call. And the main point today is that God's urgent wake-up call is, a, is necessary good news to those who are drifting into deceit. God's urgent wake-up call is necessary good news to those who are drifting into deceit. Let me pray. Father God, we pray that in these coming moments, you will speak to us powerfully through your word, that you will, by your spirit, move into each one of our hearts and lives and encourage us, strengthen us. And if you need to as well, Lord God, give us a little push by your spirit so that we might walk with you and please you in our lives. Lord, be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. Now you may be seated. Amen. Amen. So we're picking up uh, our, our series on Revelation uh, John's seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And, and this is the fifth church he's writing to, the, the church, uh, at Sardis. I had a map. I don't know if, if the, uh, overhead is working right now, but, um, you, you can see if you look at a map of this, uh, in your Bible or anywhere else, you would see that, uh, John is going about writing these uh, writing these letters to these churches in, in a very specific way. He's on the Isle of Patmos. You see it there right in 
uh, the Mediterranean, just off the coast of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. The first church he writes to is Ephesus, the closest one, just on the coast. And he goes up the coast. He writes next to Smyrna, then to Pergamum. He's staying along the coast. Then he moves inland to the west and to the south, to Thyatira, then to Sardis, which is where we're at today. And finally, to Philadelphia next week. Hallelujah. He's writing to Philly. And then he writes to Laodicea. So you can see like he, he's writing in a very systematic way to these churches. Sardis was an ancient city that had a long and proud history. For many years, it was the capital of that region in the ancient Near East. And it was built into the mountains. It was in a, not just in a mountainous region, but it was built into the mountains so that it formed what they believed as was an impenetrable, uh, uh, fortress that could not be overcome. And so they're there in Sardis. And, and the reality is it had never been forcefully defeated by outside forces in over a thousand years. It was an amazing city in every way. But it had fallen twice to enemy armies who snuck in by night and began to do their work and eventually laid siege to the city. That happened first in the year 546 under the direction of the great Persian king Cyrus the Great, the same Cyrus who allowed the Israelites to rebuild the temple in the 6th century B.C. Then about 200 years later in 214 B.C., the Syrian king Antiochus the Great did the same thing. They snuck in at night when the sentries were dozing off and they got into the city, eventually laying siege to it and bringing the city down. So twice they had military defeats, but not by an onslaught, but by the, 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 the trickery of the enemy to come by night and sneak in. And then in the not too long ago past, for these first century uh, people of Sardis, they would remember the great earthquake that happened in Sardis in 17 AD, a devastating earthquake that destroyed almost the entire city. The Roman historian Tacitus writes about what happened at that time, and he's writing approximately at the same time as John is writing Revelation. He's, here's what Tacitus says. He says the same year, 12 famous cities of Asia fell by an earthquake in the night. Vast mountains, it is said, collapsed. What had been level ground seemed to be raised aloft and fires blazed out amid the ruin. The calamity fell almost fatally on the inhabitants of Sardis. And it attracted to them the largest share of sympathy. I highlighted that this happened in the night. Because the warning to Sardis was that this is going to be like a thief. When we think of a thief, he comes in the night. And, and that although this earthquake hit over a region, it most fatally came upon the inhabitants of Sardis. So God comes to this church with a great history of riches, 
Sardis was known as the first city to mint gold and silver coins. It was known for its fruits and it was known for its wool. There was a great temple there to Sybil. It was twice the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It's a city with a remarkable history, a proud history, a productive history. It was an important city. But by the time John is writing, it had lost much of its former splendor. So we're going to jump into the text now, and and I want to look at three things regarding this city and regarding what God is saying, not only 2,000 years ago to Sardis, but right now to us. There is, first of all, an accusation. There's secondly, a remedy, and finally, a blessing. Let's start with the accusation. Uh, God comes out in this letter. Uh, he comes out swinging hard. He says in verse 1, To the angel of the church of Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, he says, but you are dead. This is a devastating accusation. God meets this church head on with a clear accusation. What he's saying is that much like the secular inhabitants of Sardis, he says God's people are now living off the past. You're living off of a reputation, but in reality, you don't measure up to that. Somehow, they have still a reputation for being a thriving church, an alive church, and yet God says the church at Sardis is dead. They're no longer having that positive, prophetic, and saving impact on the city that they've been placed in. The church is living off of reputation. They have fallen for this idea that image is everything. Uh, They're well thought of. They're well liked. They're praised. Sardis is getting more Facebook likes than any other church in the region. Their Instagram followers are coming from everywhere. Have you heard about Sardis? you got to follow them on Instagram. So they're thinking that we got this, we're good, we're all right, we're fine. But brothers and sisters, God sees right through it with Sardis. And God always sees through it. Here's what I want you to see. God doesn't ruminate on your reputation. Instead, he reveals your reality. And that might seem hard to some. That's hard for me sometimes. That's extremely difficult, but God is getting not to what seems to be, but God always goes to what is actually real. Amen. And we've got to begin to see that as not not a curse, but it is a blessing from God Almighty as a loving father. He never allows his children to live on and on in self-deception and deceit. But God is faithful, as the young people would say, to keep it a 100. Amen. God's keeping it a 100. So tell somebody who's near you, God is keeping it real. Let them know God is keeping it real. 
Now, I know we have some doctors. I see one doctor in the building. I see several doctors in the building. We have doctors in this church. So I'm always, you know, careful when I start to get into medical stuff. But but I'm going to do that anyway, because I have a medical insight from this text. Didn't even have to look it up on, on, on a medical site, but I have a medical insight. I hope you're ready for it. Here's my medical insight. Dead is not a good diagnosis. Doctors, am I right about it? Am I right about it? Dead is not a good diagnosis. I thought I was right on that one. But but here's the wonder and the grace of our amazing God. Dead never stops God from doing his thing. Amen? Dead doesn't stop God. Ask Ezekiel in a valley of dry bones. Dead doesn't stop God. You can ask Abraham and Sarah who were way over age, 90, 100 years old, way past the age of, of childbearing, but dead doesn't stop God. You can ask Lazarus four days in the grave and someone said, you know he's stinking by now, Lord, but dead doesn't stop God. That is the beauty of our God. So, so God's diagnosis of dead is, is, is not a signal to slither into the cemetery, but a prophetic call to the possibility of resurrection. Let me say that again. God's diagnosis of dead is not a signal to slither into the cemetery, but it is a prophetic call to the possibility of resurrection. God, God doesn't call out his children to bury them. He calls them out to resurrect them. <laughs> Hallelujah. Glory to our great God. So we go from this dreaded diagnosis, but now we're going into the remedy. The central substance of what I want you to see is in verses two and three here today. And God lays it out this way. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in my, in the sight of my God. Remember therefore what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief and you'll not know at what time I come to you. Now, I've highlighted several words there because they are the five verbs that are given by the angel to the apostle John, to this church and to us that, that move us from death to resurrection. And we'll go through each of those. But, but, but Sardis would understand this warning well, because as I said before, three times this city had fallen, uh, in the past. And each time it happened by night, like a thief coming in the night. First the Persians, then 200 years later, the Syrians, then 200 years after that, a great earthquake came. Each time the city was laid waste and each time it happened while people were happy, they were going along with life, they were minding their own business and they were confident that their powerful strategic city could never be destroyed. But here is God now warning them of another destruction, not by a human army, not by a, a, a natural disaster, but by the very hand of God that, that will be worse than all the others combined because he says, your church might get snuffed out. It's a serious warning. 
And for just a second, I want to look at why would God threaten this to the church at Sardis? It's, it's really interesting. In the second half of verse 2, he says, I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. It's interesting if you read through the verses and, and, and the, the, the different churches in Revelation, you see to some churches, like there are doctrinal issues, right? You're believing wrong doctrine. He calls them out on it, not at Sardis. He doesn't talk about wrong doctrine. To others, he talks about their moral failure and, 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 and how they mixed with the world in this immoral lifestyle, not Sardis. He doesn't talk about an immoral lifestyle. To others, he's warning them and talking to them about persecution, not Sardis. There's no warning about persecution or talk of persecution in Sardis. What's going on here? He simply says, y'all stop doing the work. That's right. God came with a southern voice. Y'all stop doing the work. Your deeds are not finished. This is a tragedy because the failure of this church isn't doctrinal mess. It's not some uh, uh, being caught up in immorality, a moral sin, but there's a general laziness in Sardis that stops them from finishing what God gave them to do. They're now living off their reputation. And it puts an entire city at risk, not just of a foreign invasion, but at risk of e an eternal risk because the gospel of Jesus Christ is no longer being proclaimed in the city. Matthew 25, in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about the final judgment as the separation of the sheep and the goats. And to the religious folks who think they have an inside track on heaven, he shares these words. He says, for I was hungry and he gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and he gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and he did not invite me in. I needed clothes and he didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and he did not look after me. Jesus tells the religious folk in Matthew 25 that their deeds didn't match their creeds. Oh, you got your doctrine good. You got your creeds right. But but you're not living this thing. You're not you're not living it out. He says you're not caring for the hungry and, and the thirsty for for the foreigner, for the alien, for the struggling person, for the prisoner. You have forgotten to care for those who are in your midst Christ followers are called to be a people of hospitality and of caring and of helping in radical ways as the natural outworking of what it means to carry out the gospel and love our neighbors. Amen. Now, this doesn't have to be a church program. We have church programs, but this is more than a church program. This is the heartbeat of believers in the church. And what he's saying is, Sardis, you've lost your heartbeat. Again, I'm no medical doctor, but when you lose your heartbeat, you're dead. May God grace us at New Life Philly so that 
our deeds will more and more be an outworking and will be right along with our creeds. Amen. So, so the diagnosis of death has a remedy and the remedy is resurrection. Hallelujah. In, in, in these verses, God lays out the five verbs I pointed you to before uh, to see exactly what this resurrection looks like. And I can illustrate it this way. Hopefully that'll work. There we go. The way of resurrection for a dying church. He has these five verbs and each one of them is an imperative command. What that means is this is not God saying, hey, y'all, I got a good idea. Why don't you do this? This isn't an, uh, this is not God's idea uh, uh, of something that you may or may not do. It is his command. It is his word. It is, is his call to his people. This holds true for his people throughout time as well, right down to us. Now, what Sardis teaches us, and we're going to look at each of these in a minute, but what Sardis teaches us is that it is possible to live like a zombie Christian at least for a time. Some of y'all love zombie stuff. I, I, I stay away from the zombie stuff myself. If I catch it on a commercial, that's enough for me. But but some of y'all like the zombie shows and the zombie movies. And you know that the zombies, they're they're alive, but they're also dead. Right. So they have they're able to have animation in their bodies. They can use their bodies in certain ways. But but they're 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 the living dead. And and what Sardis teaches us is that we can be that way sometimes, even as believers. You can recall all the great things that God has done. You've got a memory of a great history, but you live like there's nothing else left to do. Amen. Listen, if that's ringing a bell for anyone listening to my voice today here or at home, then, 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 then I just want to cry out with God in these voices from the word of God. Wake up. Wake up. The Holy Spirit is calling you to come out of the zombie state of your Christian life and realize that the life that God has given you always includes his abundant power to live for his glory. Wake up. God's given you life. Wake up. Secondly, he says, strengthen what remains. God has put a deposit in you that he didn't take out. No matter how zombie state you are, no matter how dead you may seem, he, what he put in there is still in there. Philippians 1, 6 puts it this way. He that began a good work in you will perform it, will do it, will complete it, even until the day of Jesus Christ. God has put something in there. It's still there. And he says, strengthen what remains. Some of the Older folk at New Life will remember with me a commercial from years ago for Prego spaghetti sauce. I like Prego spaghetti sauce. But in this commercial, there's a young man stirring a pot of sauce in his kitchen and his dad comes by, older gentleman, his dad, Italian family. And, and, and dad looks at his son and he sees this, the pot of sauce, but next to it, he sees a jar of spaghetti. They're an Italian family. This is like the unpardonable sin. 
And he says to his son, son, you've been married for six months and your wife is already giving you spaghetti sauce from a jar. What's wrong with you, son? Is your marriage okay? Like he's like, there's something really wrong here. And, and, and the father begins to go into this thing. He says, you know, there ought to be like bits of onion in the sauce. And the son says, it's in there. Father says, well, there ought to be garlic that you can see and taste. It's got to be in that sauce. There's got to be garlic in there. The son says, it's in there. And the son says, and there's love. And he puts it to his father's mouth. The father tastes it and says, oh, it's in there. It's in there. It's in there. Brothers and sisters, what God is saying to us as his sons and daughters is that no matter how beat down you are, no matter how hopeless you might feel at a certain time, no matter how much you might believe that you don't have what it takes, the reality is it's in there. God has put his deposit in you and the scripture says that everything pertaining to life and godliness is in Christ Jesus. If he is your Lord, you have what it takes, strengthen what remains. Thirdly, he says, remember what you have received and heard. What's he talking about? What have you received and heard? He's talking about the gospel message, that message that came from the first apostles and the, the eyewitnesses to Jesus and then those that came after them. He says this message, remember the message, remember the message. Brothers and sisters, today we are accosted with thousands of messages every single day. I don't know if anyone else feels like I feel, but between the news media, between uh, text messages and emails and DMs and all the other ways that messages come to us, it can be overwhelming. It is overwhelming for me so much so that 20 years ago, I stopped listening to voicemail. It's just one too many. I said, that one's out. So if you've left me a voicemail, please send me a text message. Amen. The voicemail's not getting through, but we are inundated with all of these messages. But here's the thing. No matter how many messages are coming, no matter how much information there is, God is reminding us here to remember the main message. Remember the one thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. And he puts it this way in the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, for, I, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Tell somebody near you, first importance. He says, I received and I passed on what is of first importance, the most important thing, that Christ died for your sins according to the scripture that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture remember to keep the main thing the main thing Christ has come Christ is risen Christ will come again keep the main thing the main thing fourthly not only does he say to remember but in this verse he says hold it fast Hold it fast. Now, in the chart I put up earlier, instead of hold it fast, I had the word obey there. So why in the world would I do that? I just 
change the Bible. No, I didn't change the Bible, y'all. Why would I put obey there? The Greek word that's, that's used there, that's translated in the NIV, hold it fast, is a word that means to persist in obedience. It means to keep something. It means to continue to observe it. So here's the thing. Gospel remembering results in relinquishing your will for God's will. Amen? Gospel remembering is not just something that's done in our minds and in our brains. It's not just an exercise of the mind, but gospel remembering affects your will. Gospel remembering affects your emotions and your passions. Gospel remembering affects your whole person and brings you to obedience to Jesus Christ. I want you to see this as well. This type of obedience is not legalism. It's not doing something in order to get the favor of God. This obedience is holding fast to the message of the gospel. And it's simply the natural effect of what it means to be a person who's been given new life by the Spirit of God. Look. If you've been born again into the family of God, you've got the DNA of Jesus, of the Holy Spirit in your life. You have that DNA and therefore you live like it. Amen. You might be zombied out for a little while, but it's time to wake up. Finally, the resurrection process always includes repentance. There is no gospel of Jesus Christ that doesn't have repentance. There's no such thing. The Bible knows nothing of simply saying a sinner's prayer, but not understanding that you're a sinner and that you need to repent and turn the other way from sin. The Bible knows nothing of that. I wrote a book a few years ago called Jesus Life. And in, and in that book, there's a chapter called Becoming a Serial Repenter. When we put serial in front of things, we think murderer next, right? A serial murderer. Not becoming a serial murderer, but becoming a serial repenter. In other words, repentance is a natural, ongoing thing in the life of every believer who's maturing in Christ. If I asked you this question today, let me ask it. What have you repented of in the last week? Would you have an answer for that? I want you to think about that. Because that's a critical question for us as believers. If you don't have an answer, then either you're not paying careful attention to your life, or perhaps you've let your heart grow callous to the moving of the Holy Spirit. You see, the call to a lifestyle of repentance is a call to humility and a call to grow in greater reliance on Jesus Christ. This resurrection involves and embodies all five of these movements. Wake up, 
strengthen, remember, obey, repent. That is God's way for the church at Sardis to move from death to life. And that is God's way for any church and for any believer that will continue to grow in the grace and in the outworking of their salvation in Jesus Christ. God's calling New Life Philly to be a vibrant community, not in reputation, but in reality. Amen? And so we're a people that wake up. We're a people that strengthen what remains. We obey God's command. We remember, we obey, and we live this thing out by the power of God. Lastly, I want to talk to you just for a few minutes about the blessing. The blessing at the end of this passage. uh, At the end of the passage, verses 4 and 5, put it this way. He says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. This blessing is extremely meaningful for the people of Sardis. I said before, the the city was a major center for the production of wool and of garments. In Sardis, if you went to an official meeting uh, in the city and your garments were soiled, they were dirty, what they would do is take your name out of the rolls of the book of citizens of Sardis. You can't come to a meeting of the city in in any old clothes. You've got to come dressed right. You've got to come in clean garments. If you come any other way, your name will be blotted out of the book. You've lost all your rights because you wore the wrong clothes that day. It's interesting that even in the pagan temples, they had similar rules. You can't come to the pagan temple dressed up in dirty clothes. We're going to put you out. But God says here to those in Sardis, he gives them this great commendation to say, you have not soiled your garments. So so I'm going to dress you in these beautiful white clothes. Your name will never be blotted out of the book of life. They knew the fear of that in their city. So even in the midst of a corrupt city, even in the midst of a dead church, God says that there were yet those who maintained their walk and their integrity with God. But here's really good news. I want you to get in in this part uh, of the passage. Because this message isn't just to those who hadn't soiled their garments. It was actually a message to those who had soiled their garments. Look what he says to the one who's victorious. The one who is victorious will, like them, like who? Like the ones who hadn't soiled their garments. So you've soiled them, but if you're victorious, just like them, you will be dressed in white. 
So he's saying, doesn't matter where you've been, doesn't matter how much you've messed up, doesn't matter how many times you promised God, I'll never do that again, and then you did it and did it worse than ever. He says, to the one who's victorious, strengthen yourself, wake up, remember, obey. To that one, he says, that one will be dressed in white. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, this is gospel good news of resurrection. I love this. And, and, and I love what he says there. He says that, that they'll be dressed in white. That the verb there for being dressed is, is a middle or passive verb. What does that mean? It means that being dressed is not something you do yourself. You, you can't dress yourself in these garments. You need to be dressed by another. Who's going to dress you in these garments? God himself. God himself is going to dress you in these white, unsoiled garments. Where do those garments come from? They come from the, 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 the obedience of Jesus Christ, which is perfect in every way. No spot, no wrinkle, nothing on the garment except for purity. And God gives us his garment. He dresses us in his garment. That's the good news of the gospel. Let me close this thing up today. What Sardis teaches us is that image is actually nothing. Reputation ain't going to make it. The Lamborghini, the white suit, the cool sunglasses, it all amounts to nothing. Your Facebook likes, your Instagram follows, the applause of people uh, will not stand up before the God of the universe. In other words, you can't fake your way to God's favor. He doesn't get faked out. But I love this in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7. King James Version says it this way. He made himself of no reputation, but took upon himself the form of a servant. Brothers and sisters, we can live for reputation. It comes natural to us. That's exactly what the church of Sardis did. And we can easily fall into just the same trap. You can get addicted to likes. You can live for compliments. You can get consumed with the desire for people to think well of you. And when that happens, you're in trouble. I'm in trouble. Because when that happens, the distance between your inward person, who you really are, and the outward person, what you appear to, to be, becomes a great gulf. And like Sardis, you find yourself with a reputation for being alive, but in reality, you're dead. Jesus never lived for reputation. He laid it aside. He took it off. He put it down. He put aside his reputation to fulfill his mission. And he took on the most lowly form that there could be. It says he took on the form of a servant. The Greek word there is doulos. It could also be translated slave. He took on the form of a servant slave. Jesus was not consumed with putting on an outward show or appearing impressive to people. He was consumed with doing the Father's will and fulfilling his mission. 
And because he fulfilled that mission, he secured a place in him for everyone who will put their trust in Jesus Christ. Not living for the accolades of the world, not living to impress people, but living for the one who died for them and was raised again on the third day. So brothers and sisters, let us therefore by the grace of God endeavor to finish every single work that God has given us for the glory of his name. My friends, Jesus has already done it for you. He has finished the work. He has made a way out of no way. And by the grace of God, we will not live for reputation, but live for Jesus. And so I invite you today. I invite every one of you today to pray with me and to let go of everything in you that clings to an image that you know isn't real. And instead, to cling to the only one who is the great I am. Image and reputation are nothing. But Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. He is the lily of the valley. He's the bright and morning star. He is our hope. He is our rock. He is our savior. He is our salvation. He is the great I am. He is all in all. And so brothers and sisters, reputation and image fade away. But Jesus Christ is forever. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you today for this good news, this great news of the gospel. Lord, you don't call out even our deadness, even our zombiness. You don't simply call that out on your people to prepare a grave for us. You call it out so that you might resurrect us, bring us back to life, and to see your name marvelously glorified in us as your children. So God, I pray that you'll have your way at New Life Philly. I pray, oh God, that we will see that there are works left for us to do that will glorify your great and marvelous name. Have your way, God. Strengthen every weak knee, Lord God. Strengthen each and every one of your people that needs a word from you now and call unto yourself those who don't yet know you that they might experience this powerful eternal love of the God of our salvation bless us now we pray in Jesus name let's worship the Lord let's stand and worship him together